0: On one uh, gloomy day in terms of the economy and the condition of this great country, it was so gloomy that people basically were beginning to lose hope at that particular period in history. Some actually think it was even worse than the Great Depression. It was a difficult time. It was a hard time. It was one man, solitary man, by the name of Jeremiah Lanther. He was writing to his office in New York City and was reading the newspapers, and he was reading about the doom and the gloom, and he became so distressed about the economic depression that has gripped the nation, and it was causing panic really in the heart of many. Factories were stopping productions and closing down, thousands were unemployed, although Mr. Lantha himself was not a famous industrious. He was not a very prominent businessman. He was a clerk in a small firm. But somehow, as he was reading the newspaper, he sensed in his spirit that he doesn't have to be a famous or rich or a powerful man to make a difference for God. He became convinced that one man, one person, plus the power of God can be a mighty force. And as he prayed the remaining Minutes at times of his trip to to his office, he was gripped with a sense of faith and trust in the living God. And his faith caused him to send out a letter to few business acquaintances. He was telling them that each day at noon, because of the desperate condition of the nation, he is going to be holding a prayer meeting In his office, every noon, every lunchtime, would they please come. He was optimistic, and he put basically about 19 chairs in his office, hoping that at least that many would show up. But he sent lots of letters. Guess how many people turned up on that first day? No one. (laughs) Not one person. So he found himself sitting with 19 empty chairs in his little office. And so he knelt there by himself, and he cried to God a simple prayer. Lord, change me, change America. That's it. And he kept calling upon the Lord. Lord, change me and change America. We often, when we pray for our nation, when we pray for our churches, we pray for the Spirit of God to work. We want God to work and do His work, and we forget to pray that we are the ones with whom God needs to start and begin. Change me, and change America. Well, the second day, he was a little bit encouraged. A handful of people turned up. And then, before long, the 20 chairs were all occupied. A short time later, similar gatherings started taking place on Wall Street. And then a few weeks later, another gathering started on William Street. And then another one started on Broadway. And it's like wildfire just began to spring all over New York City and then began to spread all over the country. And before long, genuine Holy Spirit awakening began to spread not only throughout the United States but overflowing into the rest of the world. Some historians have said that this movement of faith that is started by one solitary man Not a prominent man, not a wealthy man, not a powerful man, was an integral part of the economic recovery from that depression of the 1857. One man who believed that little plus God equals much. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we look at the life of one solitary man, Elijah, a man who made a difference. One of the greatest tragedies, is this statement. I'm only one person. What can I do? I think it's a tragic statement. It really is. I'm just only one person. What can I do? And the reason I'm sharing this with you. He is one solitary man. God used him. To bring an entire Holy Spirit awakening. Across the land. That flowed into the rest of the world. I don't care how many weaknesses you have. How many inadequacies you may be experiencing, if you kneel on the promises of God, God can use you as a mighty force for Him. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that because as a boy, I knelt before God. I said, God, I don't know what you had for me in my life, but I know you called me to do something. And I'm convinced it is God, in His sense of humor, takes the least, who says, I can do nothing by myself, but I can do all things through Christ who can strengthen me. And it is my prayer that after this morning, that you'll never say the words, I'm only one person, what can I do? This is the kind of faith that I believe with all my heart, the faith of a Jeremiah Lenton that God honors. It is not the resources that you have, it is not how many people you know and who you know. It is the faith that you possess. This is the kind of faith that is willing to put everything on the line that I believe with all my heart that God honors and that God is pleased with and that God wants to see in His children. He wants to see in you and He wants to see in me. This is the kind of faith, the faith that is willing to risk everything on the promises of God, that God... Responds to. This is the kind of faith that says, I am nothing, but God is everything. That is the kind of faith that I believe moves God into action. Elijah was a man of God who came from nowhere, Um, didn't have a family tree, didn't have family connections, he was not famous. He was just Elijah the Tishabite, whose name means Jehovah. Is my God. One solitary man confronts the king of Israel, King Ahab, and he confronts him about the nation's immorality and corruption. Elijah, a man who was after God's own heart. And after he had experienced this prophetic pronouncements that God called him to go and announced to the king of Israel, God tells him to go and hide himself. He was cut off for a time being, but because God wanted to deal with him. God wanted to speak to him. God wanted to minister to him. This same Elijah now confronts a new crisis. I'm convinced in my heart that the way you handle a crisis in your life, it says a great deal about your faith. Somebody said, Christians are like tea bags. They become stronger when they get into hot water. <laughs> and here is Elijah, is confronting a crisis. And the way he confronts a crisis and handles a crisis shows him that he can either honor God or dishonor God. Some people who get into a problem, they shake their fist at God. They might not believe in God, but somehow when they face a tragedy, they shake their fist at God. I was telling one guy one time many years ago in Australia... When he was shaking his fist at God, I said, you told me for years you don't believe in God. Well, how come now that you're suffering in this way, you're shaking your fist at him? I want you to turn, if you haven't already in your Bibles, 1 Kings 17. That's where you follow with me as we go along today. King Kings 17. If you look at verse 7, it basically tells you that the brook dried. It dried up. And God now is putting his man through a back-to-back tests. Don't you like it when the Lord does that? Now, if you agree with me, then you're obviously not telling me the truth. i got news for you. I have been there one time when the Lord put me through tests back-to-back, and I didn't like it one bit. And I wondered what in the world is going on. You know, the times when you kind of uh, you think you're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, and it turns out to be a train? That's That's really what Elijah was facing at this very point. And some of you probably been there. Now, verses 8 and 9, God said to Elijah, He said, Elijah, arise and go to the village. Now, the brook dried up, okay? I mean, he's about to starve to death, but God said, no, 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 get up. Go to Zarephath, near the city of Sidon, and there is a widow who will feed you. I don't know how Elijah reacted, and the Bible doesn't tell us. But you know, I just have a lot of fun speculating. And I make it very clear, this is speculation, so you don't take it as authoritative word of God. But I I just have a lot of fun wondering how he reacted. And I think of how I would have reacted. I think I would have reacted by saying, Lord, are you really sure about that? (laughs) I mean, uh, did I really hear you right? I mean, after all, you you understand, Lord, Zarephath had a reputation. (laughs) Zarephath, as a city which was about 70 to 100 miles away, uh, you have to literally cross a desert in order to get to it. You you go through 70 miles of desert to get to Zarephath. Not only that, Zarephath was in the land of the Phoenicians. It's modern-day Lebanon. Not only that, but Zarephath was a smelly, polluted place. Because, in fact, that's where the word Zarephath comes from. It means smelt, where they they used to melt iron. And it has a reputation of a dreadfully smelly place. (laughs) It Zarephath is the center of Baal worship. You know, God, I'm running away from Jezebel. You're hiding me away from Ahab. And from the worship of Baal that she brought to Israel, you're going to take me all the way to her hometown, Zaraphath, the center of Baal worship. Why Zaraphath, Lord? I mean, can't you find better cities? Can't you see? I mean, I would have given the Lord all kinds of ideas. I would have tried to help him out. I would have given him suggest some cities that are far, far better than Zarephath. Not only that, that region... Actually, you're going to find that Elijah was only seven miles away from Jezebel's daddy, where Jezebel's daddy was the king in that Phoenician land. What is God doing? God was preparing him for the greatest moment, not only in his life, but in biblical history. Now, of course, he did not know this at the time. See, we, we see this, and we look at history, and we see what God is doing, and we say, oh, in not great? But no, no, no. Put yourself in Elijah's place. He had no idea that God was preparing him for the greatest moment in his own life and in, in, in biblical history. God was going to teach Elijah that little plus God equal much. God is going to teach Elijah that little plus God equal much. Here's an important principle that I want to teach you from the Word of God, that I know the, the Lord had taught me through many experiences. God doesn't always ask you to go to places or land in circumstances that are logical. (laughs) He really doesn't. He doesn't often take you to places or put you in circumstances that feels, at least to you, to be rational (laughs) From, from, from your point of view, from my point of view. Zarephath was both illogical and irrational as far as Elijah was concerned. So let's look together at how God works. First, I've got three things I want to share with you. Elijah was on Ahab's most wanted list. I mean, he was looking for him, and he's trying to find him. Ahab's men were looking for Elijah where? In all The logical and the rational places. (laughs) Where is God hiding him? (laughs) In the illogical and the irrational places. Ahab's men were looking for him in all the places that anybody would have thought Elijah would be. But of all places, he goes to Zarephath. Right there, the city. Jezebel's daddy was the king. (laughs) I mean, there is no way they would even logically say, can, I'm wondering whether he would be near Sidon, where Jezebel's father is the king. And this is, beloved, God's way, God's sovereign way of taking what may be irrational and illogical to you and turn it to your blessing and to your good. And that's what he was doing here. You know, and when I reflect on this, and I revere the Lord with all my heart. I, uh, I fear the Lord in uttermost reverence and respect. But when you think about Elijah going to Zarephath, I have to think that it, at least at the time, must have felt that God was playing a practical joke on Elijah. It really is. I mean, it's like a practical joke. God sending him to Jezebel's hometown, irrational city, that center of Baal worship, whom he is to eradicate from Israel. But what does not make sense to you, what does not make sense to me, makes perfect sense to God. Have you ever found yourself in a place where your life really doesn't make sense at all? And you say, how did I get here, and why am I here? Have you ever sat down and said, God, I can go anywhere except Zarephath. God, I can put up with anything, but not in Zarephath. Then you find yourself ending up in Zarephath. It's not only that God sometimes takes you to what seems to be irrational and illogical as far as you're concerned. But also, there's a second thing here that I want you to notice, that God often works in more than one front at the same time. You see, most of us are able to work on one or two things. You know, have you heard the term multitasking? And even the best of us, can may, maybe can do two things, three things, four things. You might be brilliant and you can do even five things all at the same time. But even at best, five things are not enough. God is working on so many fronts all at the same time. It could be hundred fronts or more. And he is working them out because he's God. And here's, it's exactly what he's doing here. He is working on many fronts all at the same time. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. There's the obvious front of going from Cherith to Zarephath so that he wouldn't starve to death because the brook has dried up. But then, far from the obvious, God was working in Elijah's life in ways that Elijah never expected. Let me give you some examples. First of all, God was allowing him to go through situations because God had this larger purpose in mind for Elijah that Elijah could not imagine at the time when he's going through them. I wonder if you've ever thought of this that what is seemingly to be a logical and irrational trip became the first text of Jesus' first sermon. I mean, have, you, have you ever thought about this? If you try to connect the dots, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, when Jesus goes into the temple, and he preaches his first sermon, and he picks up the book of the law, and he reads from Isaiah, and then he puts it down. And then he began... To preach. He's expounding on the passage. He's talking about faith in the synagogue. And um, they're in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he said, verse 24 of Luke 4, he said, There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I mean, can you imagine? That, what appeared to Elijah to be the illogical and irrational place, became the very first text of Jesus' first sermon. Using this event, what the Lord Jesus Christ is is telling us, and He was telling those people who are so narrow-minded and thinking salvation is to them and them alone, and God cannot work outside of Israel to tell them that God has a bigger purpose. And that is why Jesus Christ came into the world, to save the world. First to the household of Israel, but then to the whole world. God has a purpose for the whole world. In fact, at that point, the Jews got mad, and they want to stone him. They want to kill him, because he gave them two illustrations. One of Naaman the Syrian, the general, who was with leprosy, but through faith he was healed. And then the widow of Zarephath. When you're obedient to the Lord, I'm going tell you something. Don't ever forget That when you are obedient to the Lord, He is working on many fronts on your behalf. Hundreds of fronts at the same time. Second front, God was showing Elijah that God loves Baal worshippers. He hates Baal. He detests Baal. But He loves Baal worshippers. You see, many of us forget that. We see people who are in their eyeballs in sin... And all we want to do like John, just call fire from heaven to just wipe them out. And God was trying to tell Elijah, who was going to call fire from heaven to wipe a lot of people out, that I love those people. I love the Baal worshipers, although I detest Baal. Two years from this point in history, Elijah was going to have the greatest showdown between Jehovah and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah would exterminate nearly 1,000 of their priests of Baal. But here God is saying, Elijah, I love these people. I love these people. And that is why I'm sending you there to live for two years with this widow. When we obey the Lord, God works on many levels beyond our imaginations. And God was saying to Elijah that at this point in his life, his purpose is beyond Israel. His purpose for the whole world. When the Messiah comes, dies on a cross, rises again, so that when He is lifted up, He draws all men to Himself. With obedience, there's always a test. So one of the hardest tests of obedience is uh, getting over what I call the first impression blues. Getting over the first impression blues, because when you look at something, at first impression and you say, why is that? <laughs> and um, I remember when in 1977 I came to Atlanta from California to interview for, um, to work in Atlanta, and my first impression, blues were really big, and I came back to California, and my wife said, well, what do you think of Atlanta? And I said, not much. Now the Atlantans, please forgive me. Now we've been there 26 years, I love it, it's my home. There's no, I wouldn't live anywhere else. But the first impression blues often wrong. They're often wrong. Verse 10, Elijah arrives in Zarephath, cotton-mouthed with thirst. It's a rough translation, but you get the meaning. <laughs> Starving to death. And the first sign he reads on the roadside says, Welcome to Zarephath, population two, and they'll be dead tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, that is not necessarily something that really gives you a great deal of hope. It's not something that inspires you that God is in control and He's really working things out for my best. How in the world did God make this colossal mistake and got me here? So he sees the widow collecting sticks and he asked her, he said, give me some water and some food. And she said, no, you don't understand. My son and I have just a little bit of wheat and a little bit of water and oil and I'm going to make a a cake, and I'm going to eat it, and he's going to eat one, and I'm going to eat one, and we're going to make two, and that's all we got, and we're about, it's the last meal before we die. And I said, man, isn't that wonderful? God has a plan for my life. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not a very good first impression for a man who trusted God and obeyed God and went there in obedience to the voice of God. Have you ever suffered from those first impression blues? When you have done the will of God in your life, and then you look and you say, what is God doing? But Elijah went beyond the first impression blues, and he risked his own faith, and he literally trusted in God's Word so explicitly. He trusted in God's Word and God's Word alone. Nothing else he had to go by. Nothing else. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss what I'm going to tell you. Because often, all we have is God's Word. Circumstances, people, even God's people disappoint us. But beloved, I want to tell you, until you are willing in your heart and in your mind to risk everything on the Word of God, in your trust of the Word of God and trust of the Word of God alone, you will not experience a miracle. You will not experience a blessing until you learn what it means to really live by faith and risk everything in faith, trusting in the Word of God alone. If everything in your life is calculated, comfortable, and safe, you have not learned how to live by faith. And the thing is, I'm noticing in my own life, the older I get, the less risk I want to take for God. And my daily prayer is, God, I don't want to ever, I don't care what age I'll be, to get to the point where I stop risking everything on your word, trusting your word alone. Listen to what Elijah said to this Baal-worshipping woman, widow. He says, before you bake your last cake for yourself and your son, bake me one. I mean, that looks like the ultimate in selfishness, doesn't it? He <laughs> said, forget about you and your son. Just give me one. No, no, no. Do you know what Elijah's saying here? He is saying, bake God a cake first. Bake God. I only have enough for two. He said, give God one first. Risk your all for the God of heaven. Trust in my Jehovah. Trust in my God. Because my God delivers the goods. Probably this widow trusted in Baal. Probably she called upon Baal. She probably sought Baal many a times. But Baal let her down many a times. And now she's ready to believe in the God of Israel. You know, there may be someone here today. Spend your life. Focusing on religion, focusing on Christianity, focusing on church, focusing on ministry, focusing on things, good things, and I'm not saying bad things, good things. And yet, you really have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and risked everything. And risked your all, namely your soul, and say, I take God at His word. I surrender my life to Him. It's often when people have trusted in the God of Mammon and become disappointed. And I met them all over the world. So people, when they trusted in materialism and ended up in misery, when they believe the lie that money and prestige and possession will make them happy and then find themselves emotional wrecks, sometimes until that point, and you wonder why, but we're human. And sometimes we have to come to that point before we're willing to trust in the only one, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Elijah had already experienced God when he left Gilead to confront the king of Israel, King Ahab. Elijah had already experienced God when he left Ahab and went to Cherith Brook, and God provided for him by the raven, bringing him bread and meat morning and night. Elijah had already experienced the provision of God. And now he's not only risking his faith, but he's encouraging somebody else who knows not God and says, You too, risk everything for the God of heaven. Listen, it's one thing for me to risk, risk everything trusting in the Word of God and taking God at His Word. And it's a whole different ballgame, to try to challenge somebody else and say, you too, you need to risk everything because my God keeps His promises. Because my God is going to keep His word. He's never lied, and He never will. And so, there are some people who are daredevils, devils, and I admire them. Uh, I am not. I am the number one chicken. I don't bungee jump. Uh, I don't ski, uh, I don't take physical risks, I don't go parasailing, I don't go parachuting. I have some thoughts and some words to describe people who do those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Ski the diamond uh, slopes, and I even know a friend who, who skis from a helicopter. He takes a helicopter and a helicopter dumps him in the ski and he skis down. And, uh, you know, I just, well, most people admire those kinds of folks. There are some people who take financial risks when they are starting a business or doing something that they really believe in. They'll stack all their net worth on that business deal and they go for it. They, they invest in unproven businesses. Some pour themselves into a venture that they absolutely believe in. And many people admire them and said, Isn't that great? You know, here's what he did. Here's what she did. But when it comes to spiritual risk-taking, I think you agree with me. There are very few takers. There are very few takers. And that is why I began the series of messages by saying that James, that text that changed my life, gives us those words. And he talks about Elijah as an example. And he said he, Elijah, was just a man like us. But then when he prayed, God heard him. Why? Because he was willing to risk his all. To stand firm on God's promises. You see, I go and listen to believers all over the place. They're saying, well, God is not hearing. God is not listening. God is not doing this. God is not doing that. No, no, no. You don't understand. What are you doing? Have you risked everything? Have you at least been willing to do it? God doesn't want what you have. He gave you everything you have, and He doesn't want it. But He wants you to come to the point of saying, Lord, I can risk everything because I trust Your Word. He was willing to stand on the bare, naked, unadorned Word of God alone. He was willing to tell the starving, Baal worshipping widow to risk her all on his God and on his God's Word, fully believing that he not may or can, but will provide. Not that he just risked his all, not only that he asked her to risk her all, but Elijah demonstrated the power of God in his life. Because he had come to believe that God is able. You see, God is able is not just a cliche, it's not just a, a text from the scripture. God is able is a lifestyle, it is a daily practice. Elijah believed that God was already at work in both ends of the situation. He believed that when God told him to go to Cherith, and then he's going to provide for him there. When God said to him, go from Cherith to Zarephath, he knew that God has already been dealing with the heart of this widow in Zarephath. You see, when God sent Jacob's children to Egypt to get some grains, What they did not know is that God had already gone ahead of them, and their brother Joseph has been there in charge of the whole country. When God told Joshua to send some spies to Jericho, it was because God already was working in the heart of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. When God told the Ethiopian eunuch to open the book of Isaiah, it was because He already got Philip the deacon to be ready to go to the chariot and help him understand it. When God told Cornelius that someone is coming to see him, had already disturbed Peter's night with a a nightmare, not a dream, in order to get Peter to go and see Cornelius. And the best way to take a risk in faith is to believe that God has already been working on both ends of your situation. The weakness of the believers today is that they have ceased to trust God and take Him at His word, period. People confusing the Christian faith, and they think the Christian faith is just give me, give me, give me, give me, feed me, feed me, feed me, entertain me, Lord, entertain me, you know, stuffing the the suggestion books with ideas of how to do things, and God is sort of waiting for everybody to help Him out. But in these last days, As far as this one is concerned, this preacher's concern, I sense God to be gathering His sheep and separating the sheep from the goats. And He wants His sheep to be men and women of faith, be willing to risk everything on God's Word. You see, the world is desperate for one thing, to see God's children truly believe God. Not say that they believe God, but they show that they believe God. Look at verse 15. The widow went away, and she too took a risk in faith and did as Elijah told her. And there was food every day for Elijah, the woman, and her son. And then it says, her whole family. You say, wait a minute. (laughs) I thought it was just a population of two. And she was only going to get some food for her and her son. Where does that family come from? (laughs) Well, you see, when you're blessed of God, everybody wants to be your cousin. And, and I think that's exactly what's happening here. All of a sudden, we're just, there's a woman and her son. And then the next thing it says, as the food starts flowing in, this is her whole family. They're all coming out of the woodworks, and they want to share in the blessing of God. How did God do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know how God did it. But I think the one who said, let there be light, could say, let there be biscuits. Amen. And that was biscuits. <laughs> I must admit the menu was not did not much variety like you get here. It was biscuit and water in the morning and biscuit and water at night, and you know just biscuit and water. It's a boring menu, but I tell you what, it kept him alive. See, my God shall supply not all my wants, but supply all my needs. He'll supply all my needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus an interesting story that i read many many years ago that has always reminded me of that risking faith of absolute trust in the living god there was a little boy who was standing on the sidewalk right in the middle of the block of the street he was obviously waiting for something and you know he kept looking and he kept looking and there was an older man who was coming from around the corner and saw the little boy and he said boy what are you doing here he said well i'm waiting for the bus He said, the bus, that's not a bus stop. bus stop is a block this way. You need to keep walking. And the boy said, thank you very much. I understand that, but I'm going to wait here. He said, the old man got irritated, and he said, now, boy, I told you the bus does not stop here. You need to go to the bus stop, and it's a block over there. And the boy again politely thanked him very much, and he said, no, but I'm going to wait for the bus here. And then he thought, there's a really mischievous little boy. And he kind of yelled at him a little bit. He said, you better start walking if you want to catch that bus. And the boy politely again turned him down and suggested that he's going to continue waiting exactly where he is. And the man finally fumed and began to kind of walk away. And right at that moment, there was a screeching of brakes and the bus stopped in the middle of the block. And as the door opened, and the boy began to enter into the bus, he looked at the, stood at the step, and he yelled out to the man, and he said, Hey, mister! My daddy is the bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> you see, those who have risk, risking faith are precisely those who know that their heavenly daddy comes to them in ways that seem to be impossible, illogical, and irrational to the rest of the world. Do you have risking faith? I pray that after today you will. Because God really wants the will more than anything else. You can stay comfortable with your calculations and logic and rational way of living without taking any risks for God. Only you can answer the question. Only I can answer that question. Am I willing to trust the naked Word of God alone and trust Him completely and unhesitantly? Or am I going to continue to live in the world's logic, the world's rationale, and the world's standards? Father, it is You who have preserved this Word for us all these years so that today, be sitting here encouraged, motivated, and challenged to believe and trust in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.